everybody, this is Player 456, a Squid Game podcast, and we are on our third part of our deep dive into red light, green light. Colin, how are you, mate? I'm good, mate, yep. Still good. Um, this <laughs> is the third podcast we've recorded in the last hour and a half or so. It's, it's good to see you again. But yeah, let's let's not. Let's, let's pretend we actually just do this every couple of days rather than in one big bunch. But yeah, I'm marvellous, mate. I'm marvellous. And I'm excited that we've got to... That we've got to the the meat of this episode, so to speak. We've had lot. We've had a lovely starter, a lovely side dish so far. It's all coming together into this madness that is the the climax of this first episode. And I mean, we've spoke a little bit, mate, already about how captivated we both were already by the show and all the little misdeeds you're spotting on the numbers and all that sort of stuff. However, I think for the vast majority. It was the, these scenes we're about to talk about which made people sit up on their chairs and go, bloody hell. And that was them sold as well, I think. Yeah, so they've walked through these stairs and they come out into like a fake outdoor set, basically. Any vibes Truman Show here, by the way? Yeah, the way the, the, the doors and the scenery, yeah. I love the Truman Show, it's so good. Yeah, just this sort of fakeness because there, there does seem to be, you can see the where the set ends, basically, and then the sky starts with the birds. It's, it's also amazing that we get up those stairs and you can come out and talk to different places and stuff like that. Yeah, it's really cool, man. Yeah, but yeah it's, it's a strange old set, this one. Yeah, so the blonde-haired boy, don't know his name, who is a little bit funky and wanted to take snazzy pictures before he entered the game, is right at the front, and he makes a bet with his friend here that um, he's going to win, but they're facing this gigantic robotic doll, Colin. Just bizarre, but great again. Yeah, it's really, really creepy. Um, and it's But it's atmospheric as well. It would have been very easy for... They could just have had... A, they could basically just have had a gun on a podium at this point and had a red light shown and a green light shown and it would all be visual. But they went for the big doll, the, the young childish voice... And it wasn't quite clear what was going to happen to you if you got caught by the doll. And it, it just built it up really, really well. It was great. So they're told this first game is called Red Light, Green Light. I need to slow down when I say that because it's like a little bit of a tongue twister. Red lorry, yellow lorry. Yes, basically. What game does this remind you of at school? So people keep giving this different names and different different versions of it. What did you call it? I can't. I honestly can't remember what I called it, but we, there was a version of it. There was. There, I remember a version of it which was about the the bear in the honeypot, where you had your head down looking at the floor. So that's like heads down, thumbs up. By the sounds of it, similar to that. And the idea was that the bear was sleeping, and when the bear was sleeping, you could move, and then when the bear woke up. You had to run and get back to your seat, and if the bear caught you, you were out, basically. So the bear in the honeypot was our sort of version of it. We actually played at the Scouts. Didn't play it at school, we played that at Scouts. But what did you guys call it? We had the exact version of this game, but it was called What's the Time, Mr. Wolf. Yes, that's the other one. That's the more common one too, yeah. Yes, because we had a, like, a sort of shed type idea that was maybe 30, 40 foot long. The gigantic robot doll i.e. one of our pals would stand at one end face the wall 
he would say, no, we would say, what's the time, Mr. Wolf? And he would give you a time, right? So he would say 7 p.m. and you could move. But he said, like, 12 p.m., there was a certain time and he would turn around and if he caught you moving, you were dead, you were out of the game, basically. And you had to sneak up and try and get to the wall. So we had an exact version of this game, but we called it What's the Time, Mr. Wolf. It's quite an interesting story about the, the big robotic doll, mate. Have you read much about this? I haven't, no. I, I, I don't know a lot about it, no. So and tell me. Educate me. It's got a name. It's called Chantal. Oh, no. That's not a good name. It's not a great name, and it has been interviewed by, I want to say Vulture. Is that a, is that a website, a sort of hip website? Vulture, does that ring a bell? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So they had an interview with Chantal, and she has got lots of followers and has been getting letters and things like that from people. For a little bit of context, this doll wasn't, wasn't actually made for the show. It's real, and it lives in a, a All right, okay. rural area. Uh, a few hours from Seoul, basically. And there's also a replica of a doll uh, of Chantal uh, outside a mall in the Philippines. And it's set up to monitor jaywalking. And supposedly, I'm surprised you've not seen this, or you might have seen it, mega viral on TikTok as people try to avoid their red eyes. Have you seen this? Oh, no. My TikTok got destroyed by a Squid Game and I unliked a couple of them to try and fix the algorithm because it was just too much. It was ruining my TikTok game. So I, I kind of blocked the Squid Game stuff on there. I can't believe she's called Chantal. Um, I mean, we both live in Glasgow, and if you meet a girl in Glasgow called Chantal, you're on a mile. So it does sort of make sense, I suppose. So you can't get caught moving, basically, Colin, or you get eliminated. Yeah, but the big thing is that elimination doesn't mean you're out of the game, cheerio, off you fuck off home. It means you're shot to death pretty brutally. And it really does take your breath away as a viewer. Like, I don't think MD was expecting it. And when you first learn this, it is, it's, I don't want to become overly dramatic or act like a crazy person shouting at the TV, but you're almost like, oh my God. Like, it, it takes you totally by surprise. And in 2022, Jack, when there is peak TV and everything has been done to death already, to be able to do that and surprise somebody like me who watches far too much TV is that gives an idea of how good this is and the talent behind it. Because it does seem that almost like half of the group turn away and start running. And I'm sure I am sitting going, stop, stop, stop moving. Like you know the rules. But obviously it's just so out there that I suppose your brain would be absolutely scrambled. We'll maybe get to a couple of the questions about people asking if we would survive or whatnot later on. I think it's that, it's that kind of natural idea, isn't it? That if you hear gunshots... You run away. You run away or you drop to the floor. That's the, kind of two, that's the two things that are in your head. And these guys ran away. But unfortunately, they ran away to doors that were locked. They've got five minutes, mate. The ticking clock nature of these games. It's a major player in the whole series. It's almost like the they take it to the extreme, it always seems to be a second that's left before people survive. But it's not, doesn't seem cliched because the amount of time that you've got to do the game seems like it would take you around about that amount of time. And therefore you get to that last second quite regularly. Yeah, I think it's quite proportionate in terms of what's expected of you. Here's the time allocated. I think if you're doing this sort of game, putting it together, you do need a time there, a clock, because otherwise everybody could just what you what you the last thing they want these people doing 
is sitting and discussing and planning and thinking too much. So by putting a clock in there, it just stops the ability to do that and they've got to think on their feet and go for it. So the survivors here, we're going to meet some of our new characters here before we wrap it up. So obviously Ji-Hoon survives number 456. I looked a little bit into numerology, mate. Obviously you didn't. So I will give you a little rundown about what numerology says about some of these numbers and whether or not you kind of think that maybe the writer or the writers have looked into this a little bit because the number 456 in numerology can mean a message from your guardian angel um, confirming that you're moving forward in life and in the right direction. All right, okay. Again, is that about the character? Is he moving in the right direction? Or again, is it sort of the opposite of that? He's going in the wrong direction and needs to sort it out. Yeah, I mean, if if anything, he's going in the wrong direction in his life and that he's, he's in debt. However, you could argue that by joining this game, he's went in completely the wrong direction because he's, he could potentially die at any minute. Uh, we meet uh, Sang Hu, the banker, basically, played by Pat Ki Su, number 218. Uh, he is successful, he's a banker, but he's millions and millions in debt. Numerology, again, points to a sense of organisation and self-sufficiency. I think self-sufficiency is quite a big thing with this guy because you do pick up, I think, a vibe straight away that he's a bit of a dickhead almost right away I think and I don't know if it's the hair, I don't know I'm not 100% sure but I'm not fully behind this guy, I think he's a bit of a prick and it does turn out to be that way but what are your thoughts on 218? Yeah I didn't like him almost immediately Um, he struck me as the type of guy that gets his water from a well actually Um, so he I I really did not like him mate and he did seem dodgy he seemed not to be trusted and I didn't want anything to do with him yeah, we meet number 67, uh, Kang Se-bok, who's a North Korean defector, um, who coincidentally happens to be the girl that pickpocketed them earlier. We've met them, they were fighting uh, in the, the the main dormitory at a point as well, which we never really went into much detail about 101 and the, the sort of thuggish nature of him. But 67, again, numerology, attention to family and household matters. So... She does have a little brother that we know about that she really wants to take care of. She's lost family, so I think there is something behind the numbers in the numerology sense, which is obviously a lot of nonsense, but I think that the writer's taken some things from it, some... Oh, yeah. Picked and chose some characteristics that these numbers that are made up sort of point towards. Yeah, I mean, that was all absolutely new information to me there, and I liked your, your point there about numerology being a lot of nonsense however treating it as a as something which has these definitions they've used it with these numbers for sure because it all does sort of make sense you can you can tie it all in uh, we meet zero zero one we've already met him the old guy with the brain tumor number one represents the sun basically um, the person represent creative strong individual inventive and positive i think the old man at points have a, has a real positive outlook on how to get on with things Again, I just think they've drilled down quite well into that. I absolutely very positive in a, a future task where you would think he wouldn't be any good in, but he actually uses his positivity and helps them very much so that we'll talk about in a future episode. And given what we find out about him by the end, he's certainly strongly individual and inventive. We have mentioned before, we are pretty sure that you have all watched this all the way through, so you know who number one is by the end. I went back and watched that a second time. His positivity and braveness, in inverted commas, on this trial, on this game, 
again, you notice it when you when you've watched it. But at first, did that sort of stick out to you that this old man just sneaking forward, game as game as you like, or did you think? Like I did, he's got a brain tumor. He doesn't particularly care about dying or not. He, he knows he's going to end it soon. I, I think, right, and this is a terrible admission on my behalf. I think even worse than that, me. I think I, when I was watching him, I just thought about the brain tumor. I think dementia had been mentioned as well, and I just thought this guy's this guy's nuts, and he's just going to run. He is not taking this in properly. Doesn't give a toss. Oh, that's what you thought, no? and that yeah, and that was kind of where my thought process with him finished. the The show did a did a real, it did a real job on me in terms of pulling the wools over my eyes about number one. And I've read quite a few people now that are saying, "Oh, I knew, and I noticed this, and I noticed that." I don't believe them. I think it was done really, really well, and it totally, it totally got me up, pulled my hands up. I watched that a second time. I don't know if you've watched episode one back, Colin. I read a lot of things online about. He moves quite a lot, but the robot uh, Chantel doesn't kill him, which then proves the game is protecting him. I watched it back, and the robot doesn't appear to notice like tremors, if you know what I mean, like or voice like people speaking, yeah. their lips moving or slight tremors. It's more bigger movements than that. And watching it back, I don't know if he does get caught moving. I think people are just projecting that after after the event, basically saying, "Oh, look, he was moving a lot." I don't think he was. There is a couple of scenes where it shows you the almost like the crosshairs of uh, Chantel's eyes, so you see what she sees, and all the contestants have got a green tinge around them, as if her her focusing laser is it puts a green sort of lines around everybody, and she, that's how she sees if they move or not, if the green moves. And there is a couple of scenes where he is in it, and the green around him is massively smaller compared to everybody else's. Oh, see, I never noticed that. I never noticed the size of the green around him. So, so. Very, very little in comparison to everybody else. He's a bit of an outlier uh, in comparison to the other contestants that we've met because he's a lot older than him, obviously. But again, I didn't really notice this at the time. He doesn't get a backstory, which you would have thought they would have given him because he's severely sick or whatever. So again, he is an outlier and we will get there eventually. He's my fa- I think he's my favourite character in it, mate. This early on of you... Have you got a favourite character? Like, overall? We may as well just get that at the moment. Is it just I do. Well, no, I, I do. We're, we're about to speak about him in a minute or two. Take it away, then. Number 101, is it? Uh, no. Then after, after that, we're going to talk about 199. Right, OK. So we'll speak about one, 101 first, very quickly. Um, I thought 101, so that's... Uh, I'll, I'll try and do the names here for a laugh, right? This is Chang Dok Su, right? Played by Wu Song Tae. I quite enjoyed this character because it was so ridiculous. He was a gangster who served as 67's mentor before she allegedly betrayed him. And he has all the the look of a gangster. He's got the neck tattoo. He's got just one of those evil faces. He bullies people. But I kind of liked him. I did. I certainly I did think he brought something to the show. And I did think that if you have 456 people in a situation like this, you are going to have the almost school bully that emerges out of it and becomes a threat within a threat, if you know what I mean. So I, I actually quite liked him. I did think he brought quite a lot to the show, actually. Yeah, I don't know if liked him is the right term, but I, I could definitely see there was going to be lots of action involving him. You know, because when you first meet him, it's in the dormitory and he's he's not shy about beating up women, you know? Yeah. You kind of think, yeah, like a dickhead like that, obviously, mate, I, I'm not saying that. You 
you like guys that beat up women, but I, yeah, I don't like him. I like the idea of him as a character. Yeah, yeah, the neck tattoos and he's got that face and he's very expressive as well, which again we mentioned in the first episode. I think watching this as a a Western guy, I still feel like there's a little bit of overacting sometimes, um, especially with the sort of crazy women who we'll get to at some point. Uh, maybe not. Not in this episode or anything, but the the really crazy one, the her that calls everybody babe. Her acting is so over the top, but it it suits, I think, the Korean vibe, if you want to call it that. Can you imagine watching a a British show and there was a woman acting like that in it? I don't think it would fit the the way that we think of British TV to be. Do you know what I'm trying to get at, mate? I'm sort of fluffing around the point. I do. It's almost what you would probably describe better as a a theatre performance rather than an actual TV performance or a camera performance, for want of a better expression. So, yeah, I get that, and there's certainly a bit of that in him as well. But I do think he's got an important role to play in terms of there has to be a threat or a menace over and above the actual game, and he, he serves that. So is number one nine nine your favourite then, mate? Yeah, I just I just love him. Um, right. So it's Abdul Ali uh, played by Anupam Tripathi, and he is a we've got it written down as a South Asian man, I believe. I, f- I think he's Indian. He's, yeah, he's from Pakistan. He tells you later on. And I beg your pardon. Um, and he's the only kind of non-Korean in the game, which does make him sort of stand out, obviously. But he saves Jay Hun's life right at the right at the start of the of the red light green light by when he trips he trips basically just as the red light gets announced yes. and that obviously means he's moving and he's going to get killed but someone grabs his jacket and just holds him up and that's revealed to be Abdul and at this point there's no relationships nobody knows anybody that's just the action of a really nice guy and that is the thing man like I love Ali as well he's up there definitely like you mentioned, this nice guy, he, I think there's sort of, they're making him a little bit, not slow, that's not the right thing, but he's maybe not as world-weary as some of the other contestants. He's got yeah. maybe a, a certain outlook on life that gets abused later on in such a horrific fashion. It's oh, God. sickening. And uh, we, we will get there. Got a lot of time for Ali as well, man. And... He's got strength or whatever. I didn't look into numerology for all the numbers. Um, that would have taken far too long. Yeah, strong guy and the only non-Korean in it. Yeah, a little bit of backstory time, actually. He moved to South Korea in 2010, I think, mate. And do you know he's still uh, in 2021 uh, in acting school in South Korea? He's hit the fucking jackpot. So he's not completed. He's not got his acting degree or anything yet. Yeah, but he's in Squid Game. So I don't know if he'll need to go back and finish that acting degree now, you know. Um, he's brilliant mate he's absolutely brilliant uh, yeah he's just a great character really well played and I mean everybody loves the main character That's he's our boy but in terms of the, the other ensemble and stuff I think he stood out for me as a guy that was just a nice person that did something for somebody right at the start when he had no reason to do so other than just his natural goodness and that's what you got from him the whole way after that yeah, so when the game ends, all the survivors have crossed the line. I think it's 201 that maybe survived, because there's 255 deaths. This big artificial roof opens up. They're on an island. Again, that's a bit lost, eh? but the thing that jumped in my mind mostly for this was 
a James Bond villain's lair, mate. It seems very, yeah. I don't know, sort of seventies, eighties, like faceless villain island in the middle of nowhere with a big roof on it that you can do bad shit in. So that's the vibe that I got there. Doctor Evil's lair or something like that from Austin Powers. But yeah, it was, it was great, and it makes perfect sense when you think about it because if you wanted to set something like this up and put it together, then of course you're going to do it on an island. You're going to do it somewhere where there's no police, there's nobody else there. You've got full control over the place, and it, it just makes sense. But you do still get that, oh, it's a night. Obviously, the front man's sitting there a lot. He's watching it all. He sticks on a song, uh, Fly fly Me to the Moon, it is, and it's played with these little miniature automation jazz things that are just really, really strange. But what is it with baddies and their sort of an ironic music taste at all? I don't know, Fly Me to the Moon, that's a very upbeat happy song but he's obviously sitting there watching all these people get absolutely fucking murdered again is it black and white yeah I think you've just nailed it mate it's the, it's the juxtaposition of the two things fly me to the moon whereas these poor people are getting flew to heaven so yeah it's, it's it's a great little piece questions queries theories uh, we'll get to some questions queries and theories then Colin Werebear gets in touch again. Would you have saved anyone on your way to the finish line? Oh, he's got two questions. We'll, we'll deal with that first one first. I'd like to think I would have done, but I'm also quite genuinely quite a selfish person. So I think if it became easy for me to save somebody and it, was, it wasn't going to put myself at risk, then yeah, I definitely would do that. But would I save a stranger in this situation, which might end up with me dying? Probably not, mate. It's obviously impossible to put yourself in this man's situation when you're going to get murdered if you don't fucking finish a children's game. But I'd like to think as well, if you could do something, like even suggest something, it would probably be more advice I might offer somebody, like, stay still, like whisper, stay still, or whatever, don't yeah. move, or go. Like, I don't think I would be, like, I don't think I'd be as heroic as Ali, basically. I don't think if somebody tripped in front of me, my first instinct would be to... Tr- to grab them, basically. I don't think so. Think of the weight of another man and you're holding that up as well. If if that becomes too much for you, there's a good chance you're going to fall forward as well. So that's why Ali's just a hero. He also asked us, um, in general, if they were to make a British version, what games would you use? I did have a think about this one because I saw it on Twitter. I would like to do a version of like TIG or TAG, depending on how you call it, where everybody's got like a, a landmine or a bomb on their hand, basically. And as soon as you tag somebody, they blow up. Um, so I'd quite like that. Yeah, I get where you're coming from, but surely like, everybody would put like a, a bomb backpack on and if they could get tagged, they would set off a timer on their backpack because if, you, if you've got a bomb in your hand, you're just going to blow your hand up. Oh, yeah, okay. You're, you've taken it on a level or two, but yeah, that does make sense. The other one, and this might be quite a niche one, Jack, for maybe just anybody that's listening from Scotland. In Scotland, um, we, we played a game called Kirby. And it was based on the curb of the pavement or the sidewalk or whatever you want to call it. And um, your task basically was to throw a ball or a basketball across the street towards your opponent. But it had to hit the curb. And if you hit the curb just right, the ball would bounce straight back to you and you could catch it. And then you got another shot. So a game of Kirby with some sort of exploding ball would be good as well. I like explosions. (laughs) It would appear so, mate, yes. I don't know how you would... I'm trying to think again of the technicalities of it. If you were to throw a ball and you didn't hit the curb, 
again, is it a, a life situation where maybe you've got nine lives and once you've lost your nine, I'd imagine that you would be up on one of those plinths very high up. And if you didn't get the ball to bounce back, the plinth would start to break or something and you might fall down that way. I think my theory would be that you you're, you are, it's almost like this game is that you come out the doors and you're actually on a street like we would have had. You're on a Glasgow street, right? And you're on the kerb and in front of you is four different bits of kerb. And there's four bits of kerb across the road, across the road as well. One bit of each kerb is explosive, and you're throwing the kerb, try to hit the kerb to blow them up, and that would blow the, that would blow your opponent up. Yeah, no, that's good. There's a game that we used to play in school as well, British Bulldog, where you would line up at each side of the playground, and it was pretty violent. And I suppose they kind of do that at a point in the dormitory where they just let them go a little bit mental together and fight each other and a survivor as a survivor which is basically what British Bulldog was about was getting to the other side and surviving so I suppose they've kind of already already done that Robert McMillan's asked um, do you guys have any alternative strategies to the red light green light game that you think would have been more effective he says surely there would have been some blind spots but there's clearly not it's just a flat area so I don't think there are any blind spots to be perfectly honest with you Unless you were like following her eyes, I don't. There's nowhere to hide in this game, basically. I did have a think about this one too, in terms of alternative strategies, and I honestly don't think there is alternative strategy. And I'll tell you why. I think they're such a stickler to the rules that if you tried to kind of circumvent them in some way, and I do have one way of doing it, but I think they would just shoot you anyway for doing that. Right. So, what is your way of circumventing it, mate? How would you get round it? What was your idea here? Pick up a dead body and hold it in front of me and just run. And then if they shoot me, they're shooting the dead body and I'd be all right. Yeah, one thing I did kind of think about, I'd like to think that I would just have walked just nice and slowly and just stopped when you had to stop. Like, that seems like the simplest way to do it. Like, just don't move. I did kind of think, once you get near the end, just absolutely fucking pelting it and hoping that the the gun couldn't aim in you fast enough, basically. Just right at the end, just keep going. But, again, how good are the guns and would they just shoot you after you got over the finish line because you were caught moving, but you got to the end. I, I just I don't think the, these games take kindly to people trying to circumvent the rules or try to be dodgy with it. So I, I like the question and I like the thought process, which which to me was pick up a dead body and use it as a shield. But I still think you'd end up punished for that. I just don't think they would like it. Yeah, I don't think they would either. So that, the episode wraps up here, mate. We've got there uh, in three parts. It's a lethal game show competition. This isn't new. You know, there's the Hunger Games. Battle Royale was a a film as well. And the most key one, I think, is a a favourite of mine, an Arnold Schwarzenegger film, basically, Running Man. With the deadly nature to it and the game playing thing, like the ice hockey, the racing, things like that, and Running Man, I think that's probably the, the closest with definite nods towards Battle Royale and other sort of Korean cinema, mate. Yeah. Into Korean cinema? Um, I, I, I did like um, Parasite and I went to the cinema and then I downloaded it. I watched it about four times or within a week or so. It was amazing. Um, and do you know what? If it wasn't for Parasite, I might not have given this show a chance. So uh, you could say it's a bit, a bit of a gateway drug to this whole Korean drama. What I was going to say, Jack, though, about the, the Hunger Games and everything else... I've seen all these links to these things and that this whole sort of lethal game show competition side thing. In terms of 
what I'm going to take from it and what I'm going to offer to you going forward. I'm going to put hands on the table here. I've read all the Hunger Games books. I've never seen Battle Royale. I've never seen The Running Man. I've seen The Running Man, obviously, one of my favourite. I was right into Arnold Schwarzenegger as a youngster, and I have seen Battle Royale, but I've not watched The Hunger Games, but it was nearly 20 years ago I watched Battle Royale. One of my friends was into sort of strange cinema, and it was that, and Ichi, the killer, was another Eastern film that we watched that had a certain vibe to it, uh, with the sort of, lots of blood. There's a very casual nature to the way that people are getting killed in, in this game. And I think that is the sort of highlights the callousness basically of the front man or the, the staff that they just like a blase nature to murdering two hundred just two hundred and fifty people, bang, bang, bang. Yeah, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. There's no real originality to this plot, let's be honest. It's been done before, but just everything else, mate, like the aesthetics, the uniforms, these masks, you can tell why it's become such a sort of Global phenomenon, basically. Killer visuals and so on and so forth. There's like, look, I kind of alluded to it earlier. It's it's twenty twenty one now. There isn't that many original ideas left, really. Um, if you think about the amount of TV shows, the amount of movies and stuff that have been made, so things are going to take inspiration from things that have came before it, and it's up to them to do something that sets their show apart. And this show's done that by the character building, by how just how alluring they make the sets look and how it, it pulls you into it. And the big thing for me, as a massive fan of Lost, is the intrigue and the mystery around things like the numbers and things like people's links to each other and all that sort of stuff. So, yes, if you want to just label this as a, a lethal game show TV series, then yes, it's very much like The Hunger Games or The Running Man or whatever else, but I think it's got a hell of a lot more going for it than just that. It really does, man. I'm going to give you... I'm going to wrap it up with my... Not my theory. I did read this online, but as soon as I read it, I thought, right, okay, I can get behind this. And it's something that I'm interested in. It's game theory, mate. Have you ever been... Ever read about game theory? Basically, the theory of games. Right, okay. Right, so I'll, I'll, try to give you a, I'll try to give you a quick example here. Do you remember the game that Jasper Carrick used to present with the, the balls? Golden balls. Golden balls, yes. So at the end of that game, it was... Share, share, or steal, 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 share. Yeah. So, in that event, game theory says the only thing that is viable for you to do as a as an individual is steal. Steal. Yes. And I always thought if I went on that show, I would tell the other contestant, "Look, I'm going to steal your money. I'm going to fucking steal it. If you pick steal, we both lose. Therefore, you need to pick share." And I will give you, I'll, I'll give you half of it. I'm, I'm quite happy to share it with them, but I'm stealing it because game theory dictates that that's what you do because <laughs> it's more beneficial. Yeah. Statistically wise, it's more beneficial to steal. Anyway, I've got, or I read a theory about this being a sort of squid game as a study of game theory as a zero sum game, basically. So in this game, one man's death is another man's chance at life. Again, the duality, the polar opposites of your choices, basically, and I think that's probably quite a solid one as well, that it's just game theory with life and death. That is interesting, and I think that is a, a fabulous way to round off this episode three and our, our final look into episode one of Squid Game, mate. Yeah, thank you for that. Yes, these episodes have came at you quite fast over the last week. We're not going to be doing three episodes a week, by the way. We don't have enough time for that, unfortunately. Maybe get an episode out. 
once a week show. This could go on for a while. Uh, thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Follow us on Twitter at Player456Pod and we will speak to you next week, guys. Cheers. <laughs>